We've been walking through the series uh, by Paul in prayer. And I, I want to remind you of the importance of the word. The many reasons that the word is very, very, or the, that prayer is very important to you. And, and one of them is this, that when you think about prayer, it really acts as a thermometer for your soul. It, it, it gives you a, a quick read on, on the intensity and the desire and the awareness you have of God. You know, it's been said that if you, um, if you want to know what a man believes, don't, don't listen as much to what he says, but what he prays. In other words, the way a person prays will articulate quickly what they believe, what they think about God. And, and I, would, I would ask you to consider, when we look at these prayers of Paul, we're studying them so that you will be able to utilize them better for your own prayer life, uh, to, to test and get a, a temperature read on your own soul before God. Now, in this prayer in Ephesians 1, as Keith said, it's very lofty language. And, um, but, but in this prayer, it, it's simple in this sense. When we read it, we see what motivates Paul to pray. Why should we pray? I mean, what, what fuels his motivation? We also see his pattern of prayer. You know, that, that he is not casual about it. He's not inconsistent with it. He's persistent and passionate. And, and, and last, we also see this idea of what he prays for. I mean, many people say to me, well, I don't know what to pray for. I mean, you start praying, and three minutes later, I'm out of things to say. Well, you won't be after this, hopefully, uh, because he, he lists the petitions that he gives to encourage the church. Remember, because when Paul prays, he writes these prayers, so he prays them, and then, of course, he penned them and sent them to the churches. So he's wanting to teach them not just what he prays about them, but, but how he prays and how we can not just pray, but how we can live in light of it. So turn with me, if you will, to uh, Ephesians chapter 1, and we'll read 15 through 23. 15 through 23. Ephesians chapter 1. Paul writes, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he has worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule, authority, power, and dominion, and above every name that is to be named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Now that's, that's very lofty language, but, but let me try to, let me try to uh, yeah, make it simpler so that we can take this, not just be taught by it, but maybe even begin to practice it. That's the goal, is that your prayers are going to find themselves more following in line with Paul's. First, don't you see a motivation here when you read it in verse 15? He says, for this reason, because I heard of it, of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you. In other words, do you see gratitude kind of being the fuel for him to pray? Uh, Paul's very, very thankful He's a thankful man. You know, I, I love when I see Christians that have an ease of time expressing their gratitude over life. 
And Paul is very, very verbal and verbose about his gratitude and thankfulness. But notice that he's not simply grateful to, the, to these believers in Ephesus. He's actually very grateful to God. He's grateful to God for what they have done. Now, the text says, because of your faith and your love toward the saints. So we're going to get to that in a minute. But when he says, for this reason, that, that Greek word kind of gets us to look back first. We don't want to go forward. In other words, why is Paul so grateful? Why is Paul so thankful? Well, if you were to read in the first half of the chapter, you would see how incredibly rich God has been to this Ephesian church. That God has blessed them, he says in verse 3, with every spiritual blessing. And so Paul is thanking God for their faith. Paul is thanking God because he has sovereignly moved to bring this church to himself. When you read through verses 3 to 14, that's just one Greek sentence. It's just one long sentence packed with phrases of all that God has done for us, that he's chosen us in him before the foundation of the world. He's predestined us to be adopted. He has forgiven us in Christ. He's redeemed us. Just pray, Father, I just pray in the name of Jesus for those folks seeking to serve whoever is having a great trial and trouble. And I pray that you would use them to serve well, to display the gospel, that you would bring about great grace and glory in that situation. Father, we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So so Paul is thankful to God. He's chosen him. He's adopted him. He's redeemed him. He's forgiven him. If you just go through 3 to 14... He has given them wisdom. He's included them in Christ. He's sealed them with the Spirit. Paul is grateful to God. Why would God save such a people? I mean, he's just grateful that God would be so kind, sovereignly choosing them before the foundation of the world. They weren't looking to be chosen. He chose them in in Christ. And so he's thankful to God. But his gratitude spills over into the church. You see that about their faith in the Lord Jesus, their love for the saints. I, I mean... The town of Ephesus was a cosmopolitan city. It was, it was materialistic. It was highly sexual. It was filled with idolatry. It was steeped in philosophy. And what's this fledgling little church miles away from Jerusalem, miles away from the birthplace and the ministry of Christ? How would they come to this, this faith in the Lord Jesus and this love for the saints? And notice that he says, love for all the saints. They weren't selective in their love like we can often be. You know, we love those who are lovable. We don't love those who are not so lovable. And so this thankfulness of God spills over, and he wants these people to know, I am loving and I'm thankful for what God has done in and through you. So that's what Paul's saying. This gratitude for God and for these people moves him to just want to pray. If you're not grateful, you probably won't pray a lot. If you are grateful, you're going to find that it just comes out. Catherine played an unbelievable piece right then, right? I just leaned over to Carol. I said, I'm glad I don't have to preach after that. I'd have to get up and really put pressure on me. But there was that instantaneous response of, that was great. And, and you gave a word of satisfaction over the effort that she put in for that place. It just came naturally to many of you. And yet when we're grateful to God, why doesn't it issue just forth in prayer? I mean, it should be the same thing. God, you're unbelievable. We clap at a ball game. We, we acknowledge the excellence of someone playing the piano. So, so I, and gratitude is pushing Paul into prayer. So let me ask you, do you find that your appreciation of God's grace in your life issues forth in prayer and thanksgiving? 
I and mean, when you think about the unparalleled mercies that God has given to you, those of you who know Christ, he's opened your eyes to himself. Does that bring forth praise? I mean, many of us will turn right to God and, and will seek new graces for future problems, but do you ever look back and thank him for all that he's done? Uh, even though you may not be perfect and you're struggling in the faith, can you, ought we not still to thank him for the work of grace in our lives? Uh, even though things, perhaps you're in the midst of a dilemma, things are not working out right now, can we not still give thanks for God, for all that he has done for you, for the believer here? I mean, you need to know your own history. Where has God's grace marked you in life? What has God done for you? When Carol and I were praying for you last night, thinking about this, I I just kind of rolled through, we rolled through just the way God delivered me to himself and what he drew me from. And, And I was just refreshed again of if I had gone on the track that I was heading, apart from his grace, it would have been disastrous. It already was disastrous, but it would have been compounded by years of abuse of myself, uh, to myself. And yet God moved me in a different direction, in a different track. We just marvel that we're here, pastoring from the background that I had. So I mean, it's it, it just... God's overwhelming, and it moves us to want to give thanks. You, you, see, it in the, you see it in the greats of the faith. John Newton, uh, the epitaph that he had written over his, over his death, in that he remarks back to what God did 60 years prior. Or Martin Luther, when he was dying, some of his last words were these. He says, we are simply beggars. He, he hadn't forgotten all that God had done. So, so make it an... Make it a a practice for you in terms of how do we develop into a church of prayer. Make it a practice to go back. What has he done? Have you thanked him for it? But not just in our own lives, in each other's lives. I mean, Paul is very grateful for this church. Is it your practice to give thanks to God for the grace that he has poured into the lives of those around you? When God blesses somebody, do you tend to rejoice over it or do you begrudge it? Or maybe you detract from it. Or perhaps you resent it. Is it your practice to look around at the lives of others and rejoice at what God is doing? A lot of us are stumbling along in the faith, but can we still not see those people striving? I see many of you, 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 and you testify to me, that you struggle in the faith, and yet you are still struggling. I mean, that is grace. The fact that you're still persevering, even though you're not having victory after victory. Can we not thank God for that in each other's lives? I mean, I I think not just the ones we know in this church, but as um, Jack prayed for Stephen Christie, we can give thanks to the work of grace in the lives of people we don't know. In all likelihood, most scholarship doesn't think Paul knew the Ephesian church. That's why he says, I've heard about your faith. But he heard about what God's doing there, and he's already rejoicing. I mean, can we not rejoice over the fruit that's coming through Stephen Christie's ministry or Ahmad? That's why we pray for churches. We want other churches to be blessed. We want God's grace to fall on them and use them. Even some of the churches may be used in greater measure than we're being used. We don't want to resent that. We don't want to be in competition to that. We want to be thankful for it. And again, it issues forth in this idea of gratitude giving birth to praise. So ask yourself, I mean, am I a grateful person? Am I grateful for what God's done in my life? And does it issue forth in prayer? Am I grateful for those around me where God's grace is moving? Can I pray over that? Can I give thanks over that? So that's what Paul does. 
It's just a simple little, from those few lines, we see he was grateful. In fact, in most of Paul's prayers, if you look in the New Testament, you'll find each one begins with what? Gratitude, the expression of thanksgiving. Okay, but the second thing Paul does that I want you to see about prayer, the second aspect of his prayer, is the persistence of it. Look in 16, he says, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. He's talking to God. He says in 17, I keep asking. I keep asking to give you a a spirit of wisdom and revelation. So so you you have this idea that Paul is consistently praying to God. Now, I want to make sure you understand. I don't think Paul just sat around and kind of did one of those monkish type deals where they just sit in a corner and give thanks and pray all day. I I don't think it's that at all. I think he works it into the fabric of his life. In fact, if Paul prayed along Hebrew lines, he probably prayed in the morning and the afternoon and the evening. And on those set times he would have integrated the needs of these people into his prayer. But Paul is consistent and he's persistent in his prayer. Now, you should, or maybe you're thinking right now, well, why is he praying so much for this? In other words, he's praying for them, as you see in 17, he's praying for them to know him. Well, they already knew him. Why is he praying that they know him when they already know him? And I I think it tells you why Paul's being persistent. He doesn't see that their knowledge and love for him is adequate. Oh, it's growing, and it's there, and we're thankful, but we know it needs to be more. And so Paul sees that the growth of their knowledge is going to be birthed through his prayer. Paul doesn't think he has what it takes to get them to grow in knowledge. And so he's appealing to God. Only God can give knowledge. I mean, you you cannot discern the glory of God. You can discern it in a general way through creation. But only God gives that special knowledge of himself. No human observation, no human abilities, no human will is going to uncork and unleash the mysteries of God. And so Paul prays. That's why he's persistent. He doesn't see it, he prays for it. Hey, God had adopted them, he called them, but he's still praying that they would know the depth of their salvation. He doesn't see that as a contradiction for himself. They know him, but we need to know him more. So a biblical prayer is always going to be a persistent prayer. Folks, there is nothing wrong with praying for the same thing. That we're praying more and more that we in this church would know God in greater and greater measure. I mean, that is a way to pray for your brothers and sisters, to know God in greater and greater measure. I I mean, does anybody here, can they rest in that their knowledge of God is adequate? Does anybody think they don't need greater knowledge of God? Does anybody here think that anyone in this church doesn't need a greater knowledge of God? I I mean, I don't think anybody would say that. And so, again, we have this encouragement to a persistence in prayer that, that, that all week long I've been praying for you. I've been praying for you from Philippians. I've been praying for you from Ephesians that you would know him better. I know that many of you know him. I want you to know him better. And I'm going to continue to persist, just like Jesus encouraged us in Luke 18 with the widow in that parable, the widow going to the judge, who was unrighteous, by the way. And she kept appealing, appealing, appealing. And finally, he just said, enough already. I'll give you what you want. And and if, if an unrighteous judge will do that, how much more will a heavenly father do that? But remember, we're not bugging God when we ask it really is 
I would say this. I think God's been merciful to us to wrap into the fabric of prayer a reminder of our absolute dependence on God. That's why we persist. It reminds us we need him. We need him to give us this knowledge of himself. So Paul is grateful, but he's also consistent in his prayer. But now he moves into the petitions, particularly in 17. And I want to I look at these real slowly with you because they form the petitions of I pray and I trust and I hope that they will form the petitions of your prayer life. Look in 17. He really prays for two things. One is going to be a greater knowledge of God, and one is going to be a greater knowledge of God's salvation. So we'll start with the first one, a greater knowledge of God. He prays that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and all revelation in the knowledge of him. So he is praying for us to know God in greater measure. He's asking God. They knew him. They need to know him more. Now notice that he says that the God of our Lord Jesus, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation. So Paul is praying to God, that God would grant greater knowledge to these people in Ephesus. It's a deeper knowledge. It's a more profound knowledge to grasp the glory and the majesty of God. The word for knowledge, by the way, isn't really a factual knowledge. It's not a conceptual knowledge. But but it's, it's it's a strengthened form of the word, which means a fuller, a deeper, a more intimate knowledge. You often see this in Scripture where it says, Adam knew his wife. And he means that in, a, in, a, in an intimate context. That, that this knowledge that, that Paul is praying for us to have of God is a deeper, it's a more profound, it, there's experience associated with it. It's not just factual and head knowledge and conceptual, but it's actual an enjoyment, experience, and understanding of God at a more intimate level. That's what he's praying for. Many of us have clear recognition of who God is. But we wouldn't say that we have the same depth of taste and feel and sight of God. I think that's what he's praying for. And he's praying for it to come, notice in 17, through the Spirit. He's praying for the Spirit to give wisdom and knowledge. Now you may say, well, hold it. In 13 and 14, he said we've already been filled with the Spirit. Why are we praying for the Spirit? Well, the Spirit who indwells us is the one who makes it further and who reveals God in deeper and deeper measure. It's not a new revelation we're praying for. We don't need any more than the scriptures we have. But it's to expand our minds to understand the depth that the scriptures teach. There is no one on this green earth that can just read the scriptures and understand it at its full depth. And if you've been a believer for any length of time, you know how it's like an onion. You just keep peeling it back and you read it again and again and you start to think, I didn't see that before. I didn't understand that. That's what he's praying for. That's what we're to be praying for each other. That God, when my brothers and sisters come to the word, reveal yourself to them. That the Spirit of God would help you bring light to the text, that you would understand it at its depth. Think about the cross. We'll talk about this more next week. But think about the depth of the cross, what he did for us. I mean, we will never fatigue from fight. We'll never find the bottom of that, that well. It's a bottomless well of just rich glory for us to enjoy. So that's what we're praying for. We're praying for this. This is what Paul is praying for. Now listen, what is the content of your prayer when you pray for one another? A, do you pray for one another? And how do you pray? interesting what he doesn't pray for, isn't it? He doesn't pray for the healing of those who are sick. He doesn't pray for financial success for those in poverty. He doesn't pray 
for better jobs who are underemployed. He doesn't even pray for those in persecution that they be delivered. Now, it's not that those aren't bad prayers, but primary to Paul is first to know God because to know God is, is our, our greatest need and will lead us to our greatest joy and will help us understand all the other problems that I just gave you. What does he pray for? He prays that we know him better. We would know God better. We'd know him fuller. We'd know him deeper. You know, it's a needed prayer, and here's why. Even for the Christian, you and I struggle with sin. You know, Paul says in Romans 7, there is no good in me. I do that which I don't want to do, and I don't do that which I want to do. And you know, when, when we begin to get rolled over by sin, we give way, we pursue the idols of our life, it does darken our view of God. We need light. We need God to open up. When we're in trouble and, and we're struggling and we hit, we hit uh, pitfalls in life, it distracts us from this view of God. So we do need to pray for one another. When you have great success and you really do well in life, that's as much a distraction. It's a distraction from the true love that you have for God or can be. And so we want to pray, God, give us a greater vision. Give us greater knowledge, an experiential knowledge of you. I mean, to grasp the glory of God. I, I shared a few years ago um, an example that Jonathan Edwards gave in terms of trying to look at these two different types of knowledge. We're very comfortable with the factual, conceptual knowledge from sermons and books and CDs and conferences. But I, he's talking about a whole other level here. He's talking about meeting your wife for the first time, and then a week after marriage. It's a deeper, more profound, intimate knowledge. Here's the way Edwards described it. He said it's like, it's like describing honey to someone and tasting honey. I can describe honey and its chemical properties and its consistency and its color, but to put a spoonful of honey in your mouth, you understand it in a whole different way, don't you? You know, when I was a kid, black and white was the photo style. It's coming back, finally. I got all those old pictures I'm bringing out. But it moved to color. With, with color, it just looks different. It looks fuller. It looks deeper. Or the movies, to go to a 3D movie. All of a sudden, you pick up more dimension and depth. That's what he's praying for here. He's praying that we would get that kind of dimension and depth and color and taste and see that the Lord is good. Folks, this you will not bump into coming into the sanctuary or walking through life have to pray for this for one another that we would understand to a greater degree the knowledge of his forgiveness that all of your for the believer that your sins have been taken away that you'll never bear his wrath because he bore your wrath for you that, that you'll understand mercy and the love of God next week we're going to actually learn how to pray to understand the love of God that is beyond measure you know how you feel you know that God loves you and yet so many of you feel so unlovable. So how can God love you? We need to pray for this. And this is how we're called to pray for one another. Not just to know God, which is in 17. Look at 18. He prays that we would know the glory of salvation. He says, having the eyes of your heart enlightened. That's the phrase that, uh, that Keith addressed. The opening of the eyes of our heart that we may know the hope to which he's called us the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints and the immeasurable greatness of his power. Now, we're going to look at each one of those 
and, and I trust you can hang with me here, the, the eyes of your heart. Okay, when we speak about the heart in Scripture, we know it's not the beating thing in my chest. But the heart is an expression, not just for the seat of my emotions, but the heart is the expression of kind of your engine room, your ground zero. It, it, it's, it's that part of you where the imagination works, developing desires, and then actions flow out of it. So it's the core of who you are. And Paul is praying that the eyes of that core would be open. Now, not physical eyes, not physical sight, but he's saying that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. You may see clearly. You may get 20-20 vision to see, to see what he's about to tell us about this salvation. He wants us to see the glorious realities of what it means for the Christian to be saved. Now, I know that many of us think, well, to be saved means I'm not going to hell, I'm going to heaven, I'm not going to suffer. It's going to be a beautiful place. Those are all true. But, I mean, that is like just skimming the surface. There's so much more that he wants us to see. And many of us don't see it. Remember, he's not praying for these things. We already have them. He's praying that we see them and understand them so that they affect our lives. The first thing he prays for is that we would know the hope to which he has called you. Now, what is this hope? Well, the hope to which he has called us, is, is ultimately dwelling with God. I mean, you have it back in Genesis 2. You have it all the way in Revelation 21. A mess in between, but, but you have it in Genesis 2 and Revelation 21. To be with God, that's the hope. You know, the, Paul writes to these Ephesians later in chapter 2. He says, you were without hope and without God. You didn't have God, and therefore you had no hope. Now our hope is being with God. It's the goal of salvation. It's the culmination of all those promises in chapter 1, verses 3 to 14. What is your election for? And what is your redemption for? And what is your forgiveness for? And and what is your being given wisdom for? And what are you being sealed for? To be with God. To be with God. The glory and the magnificence of God. To be with him face to face. To see him as he is. To enjoy him in all of his glory. This is is what the hope is is for the Christian. It's not to get out of jams and get out of struggles, although we may want those things ultimately, finally, that is our hope, that we would be with the one who has made us in a loving relationship. That's the hope. So he prays that we would see this hope, but he says the hope to which he's called you. It's his calling of us. When God calls, it is not a simple offer. God's call is effective in the sense that when he calls, people respond, which makes sense when God calls. And you want it this way. I know this doctrine of election is a struggle for many people. We want to argue with it. We want to to ignore it as an embarrassment. We want to run away from it. But let me remind you of something. If the call of God is conditioned upon what you have done or will do, then your hope is conditioned on that as well, and that's precarious. But if, if the call of God is conditioned upon his sovereign pleasure of saving you, then your hope is as solid as the call is. Otherwise, the call, if that wavers, so does your hope. So he makes this clear in Romans. Paul writes in Romans 8, he says, And those he predestined, he called. Those he called, he justified. Those he justified, he glorified. What shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, 
who can be against us? He doesn't argue with it. He doesn't go to great lengths to explain it. He just rejoices over it. He's thankful for it. It gives solid foundation to the hope that he has. He says the same thing in 1 Peter. He says, but you are a called people, a chosen people, a royal priesthood, holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are a people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Folks, this is the hope that Paul is praying your eyes would see. This hope. Now listen, the world's looking for hope. I mean, when you scan the paper, think about what we are facing. I mean, the crime, the poverty, human stupidity, greed, terrorism. And ultimately, behind all of that stands, each one of us will face our own death. And the world is clamoring for something to hope in. So what do we turn? We turn to the government. Or we turn to ourselves. Or we turn to technology. Or we turn to medicine. Or we turn to just a pie-in-the-sky Hollywood attitude of how everything's just going to work out in the end. I can't tell you how many times people just... I'm like, man, I tell you, the way we can paint our futures is unbelievable. They're looking for hope. And so then to those things that they look, they begin to idolize, and they begin to worship, and they begin to follow. And and what happens is it's dashing after dashing after dashing. It's like walking through a person going through uh, that has terminal cancer. It's the doctor says, we think we got it nailed. And then, well, we have this drug therapy. And then then we have this drug therapy. And it's just death after death after death to the hope that we put in these things that are temporal and present tense. And they just won't do it. But the Christian has a hope in God who has called him from the foundations of the world to be holy and blood. That's where our hope is. We are a future-sighted people. Our hope is definitely not in this present age. We have help in this present age, and we're going to have power in this present age, as we're going to see. But our hope is in the future. Our hope is with God. Everybody actually hopes in the future, because that's where everything's going to be reconciled. Even the non-Christian wants all things reconciled. It's not going to come in this life. We've already seen too much of human history that isn't reconciled in this life, but it will be. That's why we're people of hope. In fact, Paul reminds us in 8.22, he says, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. That's the kind of people we are. And Paul is praying, and I've been praying, that you and I would see this hope in his calling. And we'd be refreshed. We would be the most optimistic people. Who has a hope for the future? But the believer does. The belie- Who else? Well, no one else. No one else without this calling of God giving us this hope. But the second thing he calls us, to have our eyes open to is, and, and read this, it's the second half of 18. He says, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? Now, we sang about our inheritance in God, and there are many scriptures that speak about our inheritance in heaven, not perishing and not being defiled, but notice how Paul words it. It's a little confusing. He's speaking about that we need to understand, we need to know the riches of his inheritance in the saints. God looks at you, and this is why we have to pray for it, God looks at you as his 
possession. He looks at you as a glorious inheritance. Paul is praying that we would understand the incredible privileged position that you have as being an inheritance that God desires to possess. <clears throat> I mean, the value, the dignity, the glory that God would look at you? I mean, it's incomprehensible outside our understanding of who Jesus Christ is and us being in Christ so that God can now look at us and say, I want you as my people. I mean, we need to pray for our eyes to open to this. Particularly with, with many of us here, we, we feel weak. We feel broken. We are broken, frankly. And we are weak, actually. And, and we struggle with sin. And, and, and we fight for some degree of self-esteem or self-worth. And we live in a culture that has always been performance-driven. What you do determines your value. And, and how you produce, and if you're smart enough, if you're thin enough, if you're pretty enough, th then you might be accepted. You might find a degree of pleasure and, and joy and value in this life. We strive for this. And yet God considers you a glorious inheritance because of your association with Jesus Christ. It's amazing. Your value is great because of your association. But this is also somewhat known to us, isn't it? You know, in 1996, <clears throat> they auctioned off much of the property of uh, Jackie Onassis and, of course, the, the former wife of uh, President Kennedy. And uh, they hoped to raise $5 million over these many days of auctioning. And the uh, first day, they raised $4.5 million. And the reason they raised that so much in, in one day is because the prices that people were paying. She had uh, this old worn footstool that she would just put her, I presume, tired, perhaps even, well, feet are as they are, right, on this old footstool, it fetched 33 grand, someone paid. The uh, silver tape measure, I don't know what you used it for, but that was $48,000. His humidor, which, for those of you who don't smoke cigars, it's a, it's a, a box where you keep your cigars dry, um, it was, they paid $574,000 for his humidor. Now, try to put out of your mind the stupidity of people. Just for a minute, that's not my point. That's not my point. My, my point is that the value of these ordinary things increased because of its relationship to the people that they were owned by. Now, like all analogies, it cannot do justice to God. But it gives you a glimpse of being adopted by God gives you a value that he finds you to be glorious. Can we not pray to understand this? So many of us are walking with such long faces. We're struggling in life. We don't think we have value. We, we try to pursue the world's efforts to get value by self-improvement and self-esteem. You don't want self-esteem. You don't want self-worth. You want to understand his worth in you is what you want to understand. And so we have to pray for that. We have to pray for that with each other. I mean, many of you struggle greatly. I struggle with it. I mean, we all struggle with it. Okay, the third thing that he prays for, that our eyes would be open to see this glorious riches, is the verse 19, is immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. Now, 
I, I can't unpack what follows here in the next few minutes, but I would just touch on it. I would ask you to go back and read it today and, and kind of go through those phrases and take each one out and kind of look at it and, and just enjoy what he's saying here. Um, I'll just move through it quickly. Paul is praying that we would understand the power given to those who believe. Now, this power is given to those who believe. It's not given to just leadership. It's not given to the spiritually high-minded. It's given to all. Paul's less concerned. Paul's not simply satisfied that you know theology and, and you know all kinds of facts and dates about the Bible. He wants those things, but he wants you to have the power that is also for the Christian. He's praying not that we would get power, but that we would see the power that is ours already in Christ. And this power that he describes is a power given to us to, to promise us that he's going to complete this work of salvation in us. It's to assure you that those of you who are, are in Christ will end up being in Christ and very happy about it. I mean, look at how he describes this power. He draws this comparative term. He says, and that you would know what is the measurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ. Okay, so that becomes the comparative part. How did he work great power in Christ? Well, the first he gives us three images here. The first one is he raised him from the dead. Now, it's interesting that Paul goes to the resurrection to show this power. Why didn't he go to creation? I mean, black holes, expanding universes, and all that stuff, and plenty of power in creation. He doesn't choose creation to display this power. He goes to what is most glorious, and that is the defeat of death. That in Christ's resurrection, the bonds of death were snapped. They were broken. They were finished. In his death, he put death to death. Death is now destroyed. And sin with it. So it gives us this amazing confidence and satisfaction that as he was raised, so shall we be raised. This power to live in this life is rooted in the fact that Christ has already been raised. And so he will raise us. But that's the first image. That's a glorious image. I mean, it's Jesus is mocking death in his resurrection as he inaugurates this new kingdom, a new earth, to which we're invited. It's mocking death. He ascends through the air, through the prince of the power. That's the, you know, the prince of the air is an expression for Satan. And he goes right through Satan's territory, just as any conquering king would go through a city, saying, this is mine. I own this now. But then look at the second image he gives. He's seated at the right hand of God. And he's seated in the heavenlies. He's, he's far above rule, authority, power. A any name that could be named, he's above that too. And notice the temporal modifier, both now and forever. So it's not like we've got to wait for him to be reigning. He's seated now. And the fact that he's seated means that he's finished. He's done. He's made purification for sins. Our forgiveness is true. It's right. It's complete. He's done. He's exalted. That is encouraging. You don't have to keep dragging those dead sins around that you have. And, well, you know, God forgave the little ones. He didn't forgive the big ones. Well, those of you who have repented in Jesus Christ, you are forgiven, and he's seated to evidence it. So that's a power to live in this life, that we as Christians live free of the responsibility and the penalty of sin because he has died for it. But then the third image, look at what it is. It's in verse 22. He put all things under his feet and gave him head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Do you see the picture here? You can see Christ seated and everything that is is now under his feet. And to have something under your feet. So oftentimes a conquering king would take the losing king. And now we say loser 
then they would make them get on their stomach and put their feet on their back because you are under my feet, I rule you. And so Paul tells us and reminds us, this has already happened. He's not saying we need this to happen. He's saying you need to see this. The eyes of your heart need to open to understand that all things are on his feet. Everything is submitted to Christ. Everything. And so this is what we're praying for. God, give us the eyes to see these truths. To see this. Why does he pray? Because none of us feel the power. None of us walk around as if this stuff were real. It seems like theological hype and, and just religious big talk from the pulpit. But it's not true. And many of us are burdened by sin. We're burdened by the distractions of the world. And this is new to us. And that's why we need to pray. God, reveal these things to us. We need to pray this for each other. God, let us see that these are truths. Now, I don't want you thinking that this power package that I've just gone through is some kind of segue into triumphalism where now the Christians just have victory after victory after victory and we never suffer defeat and sin and struggle. That's not to be ignored. That's not really part of our life. We just have victory in Jesus now. I don't think he's saying that. I think he's saying that he is going to give us power to endure the struggles that we do have, that we're going to find joy in the midst of pain, that we're going to find that we're going to be able to progress through struggles with faith, that when we battle anger, we will have some victory, when we battle bitterness, that we will overcome it, when we battle lust, that we will find victory in that. We're going to, it's not going to be a smooth and easy road in this life. But there will be increasing victory. There will be strengthening. You know, oftentimes for me, the miracle that does occur that we've seen doesn't produce the same satisfaction in me as watching someone endure faithfully for years through a trial. And yet they're consistent in their love for God. That's more power. Everybody rejoices over the miracle. But the one who endures faithfully till the end that takes power. That's the power that we have here. We need to pray for that. We need to be praying, God, give power to this couple that is still struggling in marriage, that, that, that they, would, they would keep persevering, moving forward until they begin to understand more and more of your goodness. Those with kids or job situations or health situations, we're praying for them to know this power. Not that they can leap tall buildings in a single flight, but that they can endure faithfully trusting in God. It's a Christian life. Many of us live this way, and we don't even recognize that this is ours. In fact, there's a sad story. It was uh, back prior to World War II. There was a, a school, elementary school in uh, Tasca, Texas, that um, had a terrible fire, and 263 kids died. And uh, <clears throat> World War II happened, of course, and, uh, and school wasn't rebuilt. After the war, uh, school was rebuilt, and, um, and they rebuilt it state-of-the-art. I mean, and they put in what they described as the world's best and most advanced sprinkler system. This will never happen to us again. <clears throat> They had honor students take people around. They, they were photographed. It was the big splash in the Southwest. And, uh, and then it was about seven, ten years later, the town began to expand, and they put on a wing of the school. And when they built the wing on the school, they realized they never had hooked up. 
the sprinkler system to water. So they're, they're resting in this great system of which they weren't even connected to the power that would have brought the hope of salvation that they wanted. And, and it, it's kind of a picture, really, in a lot of ways, as to the way we just live our lives. You know, we have all the accoutrements of Christianity, and yet this power that we're talking about in these verses seems so alien and distant to us. Could it be because we haven't prayed? Is it not right for God to wait for us to understand? Is, is it wrong for God to expect that we would pray for these things and to persevere in prayer, grateful over what he has done, but asking more for what he will do? Can we not seek to be uh, kind of have a holy dissatisfaction? God, thanks for what I have. I want more. I want more of you. I want more of the knowledge of your greatness and your glory. Can that not be the prayer? So, so when you look at this text... I would ask you to consider this. You know, that, that, that part of your prayer life involves the gratitude for what God has done in my life, in my family's life, and what we've done in each other. Make sure you leave yourself to thank God for other people. That should be a staple of your prayer. Secondly, ask yourself about the persistence in prayer. Have you given up? Why have you given up? Can you ask others to pray with you to be consistent and persistent? And then, and, then, and then thirdly, the petitions that you ask. Can you begin to pray to know God better for yourself, for your family, but for us? C- can you pray that, that, God would, that, that God would grant us the spirit, that he would, he would let us be under an intense ministry of the spirit, that we would know God in a deeper, more intimate, even experiential way, that would be like eating honey versus reading about honey? And then could we also pray for one another that we would know the hope that all of us are pointing to and it's grounded in the call, that we would know the inheritance that he considers us to be? Wouldn't we treat each other different? Wouldn't we treat each other different if we knew how God valued one another here? And and to know the power that's given to us who believe. That's the criteria, those who believe. The power is there. So I'm going to start us in prayer, and then David's going to close us in just a minute. And, and make your prayers uh, loud so we can agree with you, and, and we can be encouraged by it, just as this church was encouraged by Paul's prayer. And, and pray briefly, because I know that many times people want to pray, and they're a little nervous, um, and so that you'd be brief to allow room. So I'll start. David will close. And, uh, and let's use this as a model. So, Father, I just want to thank you. Uh, for the grace that you have given to this church and the incremental growth that I've seen in so many people, Lord. I, I've seen people endure well through trial. I've seen people uh, move beyond sin into, into greater sanctification. You've, you've revealed salvation to us through the conversion of, of friends in this church, Lord. I give you the thanks and the, and the glory for the grace that you have poured out to us in this church, Father. Praise you for that in the name of Jesus.